My name is Rahul Sones and I am the host of the On Meaningful Work podcast and the founder of the Disruptive Business Network. For those of you who are new to the podcast, uh, the On Meaningful Work podcast is really about the journeys that people have taken uh, to find real meaning and a sense of purpose in the work that they do. Each conversation uh, tries to highlight those sources of meaning that have influenced a career that's uh, built on purpose. In this episode, uh, we I chat with uh, serial entrepreneur Kunal Kalro. Uh, we chat about his upbringing in Dubai, uh, the decision making that kind of formed his early decisions in education and his primary career path. And we talk about entrepreneurship. We talk about the lure of entrepreneurship, what we, what most people get wrong, and also about Kunal's lessons from his personal failures. Uh, we conclude the conversation by chatting about how a personal tragedy really led to an inquiry into the real lack of diversity in uh, genetic research, which then led to the founding of Kunal's latest company, Eugene Labs. Uh, now, Kunal is a dear friend of mine, and I had a great time chatting with him, and I learned heaps. And I really hope you do too. Thank you for listening. Alrighty, Kunal. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, this kind of feels almost like we're having a chat because uh, just to give people context, I, I, we used to be housemates and this used to be my old pad. Yep. So it yeah. just feels like us having a chat with these big bulky microphones in just our like, faces. <laughs> I mean, it's like what we normally do, right? Like, yeah. It's like how we normally chat. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, so how are you, man? Like, it's I know it's we spent the um, majority of last year's lockdown together, but how are you coping this time around? Uh, I mean, this time it's not it's not too bad. It was only three weeks, right? And uh, we had some breaks in between in terms of things were slightly moved along and mm. fewer restrictions. So it's not that bad. I feel like I'm pretty used to it now. It's like cool. Back, yeah, yeah, stay at home. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. <laughs> let's just plow through it. Yeah, and, yeah. I've yeah. been here, done it. Let's do this again. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, so, yeah. It, it kind of feels annoying that you have the rest of the world that's starting to open up, but we're still sitting here because we cannot organize ourselves out of a paper bag and vaccinate anyone. <laughs> yeah. So, that feels annoying. But I know. Other that than is that, frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so, anyway, so, so this, as you know, this podcast is really about uh i suppose your journey in, like in terms of your professional life and your entrepreneurial adventures and so on uh but before we get to that um like what's your origin story like where are you from where are you born yeah so mm. i was born in dubai uh mm. actually before we get into this the plant is straight up in your <laughs> yeah. uh, i don't know if you want to keep it there it's all up right, to let's, you all uh, right we'll pause for a second <laughs> And we're back. Uh, yeah. So I was like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to look at you straight, <laughs> with a straight face this whole time, if it's going to stay there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So I guess origin story wise. So my family's from India, mm -hmm. but I was born in Dubai. My parents had moved to Dubai early 80s before I was born for a few years before. Yeah. So a few years before I was born. And I grew up there. I went to high school there, mm. primary school there. And then after high school, I moved to the U.S. to 
do university. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to Indiana of all places. Oh wow! Yep, like the Indy 500. Yeah, that that's, that's probably the only thing it's known for. To yeah, be honest, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I was racking my brain like what happens. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's that's pretty much it. Mm. And yeah, it was uh, it was a really interesting experience major culture shock if you think about it because mm. i'd never been to the u.s at this time and i grew up in the middle east and my family was from india and i did go back home to india quite often as well but moving to a whole new place and yeah moving to the u.s for the first time ever and moving to midwest u.s was wow a bit of a strange experience actually before we get into that like what was dubai like growing up like yeah, yeah. fair uh very different to what it is today yeah in in some pretty big ways it was not nearly as much the bastion of capitalism as it is today yeah uh, maybe if it's not capitalism it's at least a bastion of materialism mm-hmm. which it wasn't back then it was kind of a small town in a way you know not not that many people maybe a million or so mm-hmm. and growing up there was not what you might expect Dubai to be like as it is today. Mm-hmm. It was pretty simple and obviously lots of desert land. Mm. And when I grew up there, every picture you see of Dubai in terms of its skyline simply didn't exist. It was just sand. Mm. So a uh, very different place as it is now. I think things started to change a lot more once I was about 12 or 13. Yep. And Dubai started to invest a lot in all this real estate essentially right like building these really tall skyscrapers yeah. in the, middle of the desert and things started to change quite a lot from there from then on mm-hmm. and the culture of the culture of cars has probably always been there but it started to expand to other areas as well and materialism whether it's cars money watches mm-hmm. anything that's kind of a status symbol fashion became more and more prominent in our daily lives, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it was a strange experience to have that transition happen once we're in our teenage years. Yeah. And I've never really cared too much about all of those things. So by the time I was 16, 17, I was like, yeah, uh, I got to get out of (laughs) here. It's also organizationally racist and institutionally Mm. racist and sexist and all of this. Yeah, all of this, yep. So I really was ready to opt out. And what was um, what was schooling like there? Like, mm. so I went to an international school. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably explains a few aspects of my accent. Yes. Uh, so it was a British. It's high always school. puzzled me that accent. No. Yeah, I know <laughs> it's it's a strange one. Let's be real. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, mm. I went to a British high school, but most of my teachers were from the subcontinent, mm-hmm. and uh so i did like o levels and as levels and a levels or whatever the Mm. british system is most people go in dubai go to well most expat kids will go to private schools because the public schools are in arabic and so Mm -hmm. you really don't do that because realistically most expats aren't planning for a long-term life in dubai and quite frankly if you only know arabic you really would have a hard time doing long-term life in dubai anyway Mm -hmm. and so we uh so most of us went to uh, international schools whether it's the indian system or the british system or ib or Mm -hmm. whatever yeah and what were you like at school did you enjoy Uh, it did you uh (laughs) 
I did. It was weird. I was actually really bad at school until I think I turned about 13 or mm -hmm. 14 or something and then started to do surprisingly well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not sure. I was like, oh, the neurons weren't firing until then is mm -hmm. kind of my <laughs> <laughs> reasoning because I really don't have anything else to claim. Yeah. But I was uh, I was actually a pretty good student, but I was a troublemaker. Mm -hmm. I was a good student because my parents had a simple rule. If I got good grades, I mean, immigrant parents, you know how it is. Yep, yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if I got good grades, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if you don't get good grades, you're basically grounded all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, also, you don't really have an option. You have to get good grades. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel you. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. And and so pretty much I figured out what I had to do was get excellent grades and then I could do whatever I want. And mm -hmm. that whatever I want meant I got into trouble a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, had a bit of a arson vibe going on, arsonist vibe going on. Not Whoa. arsonist, just like a pyro. Arsonist yeah. is criminal. Pyro, just <laughs> like fire. Uh, so... You didn't burn the school down. I did you? not burn the school down. No, no. I don't plead the fifth. I actually just didn't burn the school down. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so besides school and studies and the pyrotechnics, like, <laughs> <laughs> what, like, say around that age, 10, 11, yeah. 12, like, what were you, like, what were your hobbies? Like, what were you passionate about, like, outside of school? So, like, so fire is not a passion you say oh okay yeah fire <laughs> no, okay it's <laughs> <laughs> um, probably the symbol of passion <laughs> uh, so i played a lot of sports mm. uh, I, I think since childhood i've had this sort of desire to just be good as good at as many things as possible mm -hmm. and whether that was physical or intellectual i was always interested in that so uh played a lot of sport played basketball for and uh, i'm five six so mm. that's not yep uh but used to good at good at dribbling yeah uh, i mean the speed counts as well yeah exactly yeah. exactly and so played a lot of sport uh hung out with friends a lot i also played a lot of video games you know it was like that whole counter-strike era yeah 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 there was mm. not much else to do in dubai so it was pretty much play basketball and when you're tired you go play counter-strike and and then after that you go smoke shisha which definitely was they should not have been serving us because we were <laughs> 13 at the most and uh we looked like we were 10 because yeah i looked very young mm. and yeah so that life was life was a lot of that mm. not a lot of uh extracurricular activities out of school so most of the stuff that we did was pretty much uh out of school Mm -hmm. uh, not, a, not a lot of extracurricular activities in school. So a lot of the stuff we did was out of school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then so you, you finish high school and then you go to the U.S. Like what, what did you decide to study in the, in the U.S.? Uh, <laughs> accounting and finance because I'm a good Indian boy. <laughs> wow. That is that. I mean, I, I, I knew that. <laughs> but I was shocked when I found out because mm. here you are sitting in a, like a leopard print jacket, you know, as far away from or my imaginings of what accounting and finance would be. 100%. Mm, mm. So that was to tick the please the you parents gotta box. Take the you got yeah. to take the box. That's yeah. the, <laughs> um, no, so my parents, you know, they weren't super well off and mm. they saved money for my education probably since the day I was born, to be honest. Yeah. Mm. And when I went to the U.S. to study... And when I told them I wanted to go to the U.S. to study, there was never a question of whether or not they would pay for it. They were they were going to pay for it, mm -hmm. uh, even though realistically, I think if you looked at their 
annual income, which I didn't understand at the time because I didn't have my accounting and finance degree, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, was just simply not that big. And mm-hmm. the idea of me asking for something like that, look back at it and be like, well, that's pretty ludicrous. Mm-hmm. But they'd saved a lot of money for that. And so when I went to the U.S., it was very much a thing of you have to get a degree in something that's practical mm-hmm. and something that is going to have marketable value mm-hmm. beyond university. Liberal arts degrees yep. don't generally fall into that category. Mm-hmm. But I did not for Indian parents. No, not for Indian parents <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I wanted to study mm. sociology, and mm. my parents were like, "Cool, are you paying for it?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fair call. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. yeah. I mean, yeah. So I had. So I took the the box doing engineering. Yeah. Although yeah. Although I mean, looking back, I'm glad I did it because it has its uses. Yeah. But uh, especially at the time, I wouldn't have picked engineering. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm. Same really. Mm. I mean, you know, I run a company now and I manage the finances and it's a go. big yeah. part of my job. And I would not have been able to do that if I didn't have those skills that. Uh, sure, I could pick it up on the go or learn by doing and all of that kind of stuff. But accounting and finance is the kind of skills that you don't really learn unless someone forces you yeah. to learn them. Mm. And university <laughs> forced, forced me to yeah. learn them, mm. yeah. Um, and also, I mean, running a company, that's pretty much like a big part of the puzzle is... 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You can't run a company if you run out of money. That's yep. just nature of it. Yeah, or oh, understanding understanding how that works because it, yeah. it is it, it is almost an art of you know or levers which levers to pull and yeah yeah yep. mm-hmm. when when to when to spend when to save when to constrict when to open up mm. these are all pretty important i mean for eugene anyway it's it's venture funded so well it's sort of investor funded and that means that you know, you, you're running a particular type of race every mm-hmm. time. You're always racing against the clock. So having a really good understanding about where the money's going, how much is going every month, mm-hmm. and uh, what it's going to take to get to the right levels uh, and make sure that the company continues to prosper and grow and all of that kind of stuff is mm-hmm. definitely a, an art. But mm-hmm. to get there, you need those base skills like if you don't know how to paint, you're not going to be a good painter. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so so then, Indiana. Yeah. What? Wow. So what? What was that like? Like what, coming out of Dubai, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it was strange. It was 2004. So wow. Yep. Background mm. context is that you know that's three years after uh, the September 11 attacks. Yes. Uh, mm. In the middle of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, or just mm. like the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. And that meant that the, I suppose the sentiment against brown people was at an all-time high. I don't know if, I don't know, maybe it's worse now. It's... uh, It it comes and goes. Yeah, 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 peaks and drops. It wasn't good Mm -hmm. at the time. It was definitely Mm -hmm. worse a a couple of years before when it had just happened. Mm -hmm. But that sentiment was pretty much still alive and... Indiana is in the Midwest, and so it is a conservative state. And while Indiana University is in a small town, mm-hmm. and it's a college town, so it's mostly young kids, uh, kids who are going to university, which they're generally progressive and much nicer about it. Mm-hmm. it. It didn't mean that there was some of that background awareness 
that this is something that does come up every now and again mm -hmm. right and uh so that was that was like the background context but all in all it was a really awesome university and a really good time there especially because mm -hmm. it was a big party school so yeah that yep. was super fun mm -hmm. uh and you know outside of pockets of issues that happened every now and again mm -hmm. the vast majority of my experience was incredibly positive mm -hmm. and i wouldn't want to live in indiana again per se mm -hmm. but that experience i had there was pretty amazing and meaningful i made lots of connections uh that i still hold to this day mm -hmm. and also it sort of vaulted me into the next phase of my sort of evolution so mm. yeah yeah um so looking back on that period now mm. um can you think of any you know stories or moments or things that happened that that kind of shaped what you do now or who you are now yeah um yeah sorry it's kind of a big question but yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I think there was well so when I was uh, when I was at university uh I was thinking about doing investment banking. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, cuz it was one of the ones that had the highest prospects in terms of potential uh exit uh, not exit opportunity uh, potential work opportunities after mm. after university and what would pay the most mm. which once again Yep, critical. Yep. 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 Uh mm -hmm. Indian parents refer to previous conversation mm -hmm. and uh, uh I was looking I was sitting in this classroom where there were you know you had like an investment banker come from where I was New York or something and they're telling you about what their life looks like and what their uh work day looks like and you're kind of learning more about what this life might be and I was sitting in this room and I was looking around and there was literally no one uh, like we could have put a brown uh, this is actually what i said at the time which is that you could have put a brown paper bag on everyone's faces and you'd never know who's who hmm. because it seemed like people just lacked there was just like a distinct lack of personality individual hmm. personality and it was just like the most same samey experience of people that i've ever had in my life where mm. it's just like everyone here is the same there's just no differences there's no uniqueness about them and mm -hmm. they're just like you know doing this thing just to fit within the box mm -hmm. of what is expected of them and i was like this is not for me mm -hmm. i don't want this i go i want something else mm -hmm. and i didn't figure it out in university but it definitely sparked for me the Desi the desire to be different has always been there mm -hmm. and i think it has kind of played a role in how i dress and what i yep. like to do and all of that kind of stuff but this sort of sparked this particular interest in what can i do differently from mm -hmm. a professional and work context until this point i probably was just like yeah cool like you study accounting you study mm -hmm. finance you just do what you're supposed to do and mm -hmm. you express yourself in different yeah uh, you can express your uniqueness in other aspects of your life but mm. working professional life is just the standard yeah and you you mentioned like this desire to be different like before 
before this this experience, can you trace that feeling back to a previous experience, maybe in childhood or school or, you know, where, where that sort of came to the fore? Or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I could, like, pinpoint a particular moment in time where mm. this has sparked, but the desire to be different has, for as long as I can remember, it has been there for me mm -hmm. where... And I think when I was young or in high school or even primary school, a lot of it was expressed in what I wore mm -hmm. or how in, you know, like the types of hobbies that I picked up. I would often pick up hobbies that none of my friends would do. Such as? Um, well, I mean, breakdancing was one and mm -hmm. then it ended up so that a lot of my friends started doing it that as well. Mm. And uh, then there was, I tried to like learn guitar, which once again, not an unpopular hobby to pick mm. up per se, but none of my friends did it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I tried that for a while. It was always like, you know, on the trying different things mm -hmm. uh, that other people in my life did not do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of how I got into computers too. Yep. And I think also, I mean, since I've known you, like what I've really admired is like your sense of design, like not just mm. in kind of how you present yourself, but kind of your living space and yeah. now your company and, you know, uh, I, I think everything that you kind of got the design Midas touch and like everything you touch is somehow well designed. Like where, where, how did that come about? Like, did you... Can you trace that back to a, a moment or a feeling or? Yeah, yeah. totally. So, well, firstly, thank you. Mm. Uh, that is a big compliment. Thank <laughs> you very much. Midas touch, jeez. Mm. Uh, uh, great. Yeah, thanks. Mm. Uh, so, I think that presentation mm. of self is actually where my interest in design sparked. So, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily about the stuff and it's definitely expanded to all of that and into many other areas of my life but it started with presentation of self and that i think if i were to trace it back it would definitely be the influence my three sisters have had on me because mm -hmm. i think in indian culture boys aren't really expected to present in any particular way no but just good marks yeah at school and yeah that's yeah. right <laughs> exactly yeah and uh whereas women are girls mm. are girls are expected to present in a certain way but there's just like so much uh, the three sisters that i had there's just like so much influence that happens uh there that i became more conscious about how one presents themselves and mm -hmm. that combined with dubai which is also well you know when i was like 13, 14, becoming that materialistic fashion forward kind of place where mm -hmm. uh, w how you present yourself is how people view you mm -hmm. uh, for better or for worse. I don't necessarily agree with it, but that is what it was. And so how I presented myself became more and more ingrained in my everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so a sense of uh, that combined with my desire to be different mm -hmm. and be unique meant that I was interested in finding different ways of still presenting myself in a, 
in a nice way, mm -hmm. right? Like to look good, but do so in a way that's different than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of sparked my interest in design at large, mm -hmm. uh, where it's not just about looking good and following trends and what everyone says, but what can you do that's both good and also unique? Mm -hmm. and, and, and at the time, were you kind of seeped in like trends or like what's fashionable or like how would you experiment with with that yeah mm. um fuck this is like going back to the archives <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry i'm not sure if i'm supposed to not cuss but uh, oh cuss away my friend it, yeah <laughs> like i said we're on we're, we're in our couch so yeah that's yeah. right <laughs> uh mm. yeah so interesting um so there's like I think like the thing that I found really interesting back then when I was a kid, and I think there is probably still elements of this that are true, which is to mark, to view the trends and mark the trends that are out there at the moment mm -hmm. and find ways of making them unique to you. Mm -hmm. So what can you do that's like combining what's out there and then also what's inside? Mm -hmm. And that is, Fuck, honestly, I think that might be an eternal search for me. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, I think that I, I did that a lot back then, too. Like, mm. I think you'd be like, you know, I'd go to a shop or whatever and be like, oh, these are like, this is what's trendy. This is what's happening. Mm. But then it wouldn't be like, oh, this is what's trendy. I should buy that. It's like, hmm, what is it? What like what in this trendiness is uniquely a way that I can express myself. Mm -hmm. So what's still inside is something that I want to put outside, mm -hmm. but how can I do that within the construct of what is currently trendy yep. is something that I, I started doing now, I think about it, at like mm -hmm. a really early age, probably not doing it very consciously, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Because um, l like to me, it seems like there's almost... I mean, which is funny, it's like going back to your obsession with pyrotechnics like it's almost um like explosive in a way like your sense of design and your sense mm. of self mm. in that it's um like the way you express yourself it, it it is very colorful and it's not like the dour melbourne blacks and greys <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah yeah you're not gonna find me in blacks so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um so anyway so moving kind of Sorry, we're jumping all over the place. Oh, here, it's but, fine. Jump away. <laughs> but moving back to Indiana and you're finishing off your finance and accounting degree and then you had this experience with the investment banker. Yeah. Then what was your first job out of... Yeah. yeah, so not any less dull than investment banking at all, actually. Because, mm. I mean, and realistically, you know, I didn't do investment banking because I found that the personalities in there were just all the same. Mm -hmm. And I think I saw that there was the expectation to be the same mm -hmm. and didn't want that. But I still like did accounting and finance. It's not that far. And I then graduated and I did my master's as well, actually, because mm -hmm. it was global financial crisis when I was graduating. Yeah. Wow. 2008. Yes. Fun times mm. for all. <laughs> yeah. Big party. Mm. And <laughs> uh, I was like 2008. I cannot 
enter the marketplace at this stage. Mm. It's a fucking shit show. Yep. And so I went back and did my master's immediately. Mm-hmm. And that was in another perfectly well-chosen, responsible decision f- uh, based on my parents' input, mm. information systems. So I really... Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you take two boxes now. Take two boxes. <laughs> Gotta take the boxes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so... Mm. Uh, also really don't need to take the boxes, but I definitely did take the boxes and, mm. uh, yeah, so I did my master's and then I graduated in 2009 with my master's mm-hmm. and I went and worked for Ernst and Young Okay. Yep. doing consulting in information mm-hmm. systems mm-hmm. and that was in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. What was that like? Boring as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first day. I walked into work. I was so excited because I always wanted to, I loved Chicago. So when, uh, when I first moved to Indiana, I think, you know, the first Thanksgiving break or whatever I had that I was in, mm. in the, um, uh, in the city, I, we decided to take a trip to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I arrived and I've had this moment in multiple cities in my life that I've visited where as soon as I arrived, I was like, Oh my God, I have to live here. Mm. This is amazing. I just have like an instant connection. Mm. It's like the first date where you like have sparks fly as soon as you meet the person with Mm. cities. And I was like, love this place. I have to live here at some point in my life. And obviously uh, Indiana with this close proximity to Chicago, the most obvious time to do that was after I graduated and I was like actively seeking a job in Chicago. And so I was super excited to live in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first day I was walking to work from the metro station and I was like, this is so cool. I'm like doing it. I'm mm. living my life. Yeah. I'm, you know, <laughs> made it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Made it. College mm. grad. What's up? <laughs> and I was like looking around all the tall buildings and I'm like, this is so great. And I walk into the office and it's orientation and I walk out of the office at 5 p.m. and I was like, I cannot wait to quit that job. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is not going to work for me. Yeah. Uh, what? Okay. So, so what, what hit you that first day? Right? It was kind of that same feeling i had in that room with the investment bankers where i was like oh this is all bullshit Mm. and everyone everything's the same you know you're uh, it it just like wasn't the right fit clearly Mm. and a lot of the stuff that people said uh, with orientation at consulting firms it's always the same i think it's mm-hmm. like we choose the best and brightest especially grad consult uh, if you're a graduate and you're entering it's just all the same yep. we choose the best and brightest like you know you guys are mm. like the cream of the crop blah 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 and uh, this is going to be an amazing opportunity for you, blah, blah, mm. blah. And you look at the career progression and it's, you know, well, not that amazing anyway mm. in the grand scheme of things. Uh, not that that like, not that money is everything, but uh, it's not that great. Also the work that you do is not that interesting. Mm-hmm. And everything I heard, I was just like, this is again, the same sameness. It's just not for me. Mm-hmm. And, I just it just had the vibe where I was just like, yeah, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. How, how long were you there? Oh, uh, I was there for two years. Yep. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah, I was there for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, I aim. I, I well, it was also the global financial crisis, so I was very so, thankful yeah. to have a job. Yeah. And mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you gotta like 
even if you know something's not right for you, sometimes you actually just like have to do what is going to help set you up for that next phase mm -hmm. and quitting randomly when you know the company's going to sponsor your visa and all of that kind of stuff yeah it's not smart yeah. not smart also if you're a graduate and you have no real skills let's be mm -hmm. real uh yeah. then you know no one's no one's going to hire you either so mm. yeah uh i stuck it out for i was planning to stick it out for a year and then kind of had these uh, medical uh issues where i tore my acl and i had to go into surgery and rehab for about six months and oh, stuff. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, good health insurance is hard to come by in the U S and so I was like, that's another reason to stick with it. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. And so then mm. I ended up staying for a couple of years. Okay. Um, and did you have another job after that? Mm. So when did like entrepreneurship start to rear its ugly head? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I guess a year... Or when did you start thinking about it, rather? That I should yeah, do my own thing. Fair. Yeah, fair. Uh, so a year after I was at... So I had decided, I'm like, cool, I'm just going to stick it out. I'm going to stay here for a year mm. into this into my first job. And then I tore my ACL. And then I was like in, you know, physical therapy and rehab and all that kind of stuff. And that was... That gave me a lot of time to reflect of what i want in my life mm -hmm. and i knew that my options in the u.s were going to be pretty limited because i was limited by a visa mm -hmm. so i'd always have to work at a company that was willing to sponsor a visa and that's usually a bigger company and mm. not a lot of opportunities and i wanted to basically not do that mm. i wanted to work in something more interesting something a little bit more dynamic startups was obviously in that category mm -hmm. and i tried to like look for jobs in there and i couldn't really get through to most places primarily because no one was going to sponsor they're, they're on sponsor mm -hmm. and i was also at the same time really fascinated with this idea of moving to south america yeah what what brought that on? Well, I had grown up in Dubai. My family's from India, and in Dubai, I went to international school. So, a lot of my friends were from all over Asia, mm. Africa, and Middle East. And it was a British high school, and I went to the U.S. to study. So I felt like I had a handle on world culture. Were, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like. A loose handle, I should <laughs> say, right? Like, uh, or at mm. least a, a naive idea of what a mm. handle on world culture is yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. at the time. And I was like, I don't know anything about South America at mm. all. Nothing, nothing at all. And this is a whole continent where I know nothing. And how interesting is that? Mm. And so I was really fascinated with going to South America because I was excited by that, mm -hmm. th by this idea that I like don't know anything about this place. How cool would it that be? Mm. And uh, I was like, well, I don't want to be imprisoned in the U.S. Mm -hmm. by you know being stuck at a job I don't like and only because a visa is keeping me there. And so I started to explore this idea of what it might look like to move to South America. Mm -hmm. And I started taking Spanish classes and that was fun. And someone once told me about, uh, at some point, someone in the class told me, oh, there's this program called Startup Chile, mm -hmm. which yep. is an accelerator program where they'll invite foreign entrepreneurs, give them 40 grand equity free to move to Chile and start a company. Mm. 
I was like, oh, that's interesting. I could start a company. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if that involves yeah. moving to South America. Yeah. And uh, the broader context being that if I moved to South America and wasn't doing like something useful with my life, my parents would absolutely kill me. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, there was like an element of like, this is useful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was also the element of I was interested in the space and I would have... Mm. Uh, enjoyed working for a startup and I think that yeah. would have been like the baby step towards it. Also around that time, like 2012, 2013, I think that was kind of like the uh, the explosion of startups in a sense because that that's when kind of the lean startup movement started getting steam and, you know, uh, I think like the big unicorns were just starting to ramp up or even more. Yeah, then. definitely. So, yeah. yeah, that was, that was yeah. like the Groupon era. Yes, it was like 2011 yeah. and Groupon like was getting huge mm. and uh, Groupon was also Chicago based. So there was a lot of, um, I guess, buzz around it. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the places that uh, one of the things that actually was like making me really excited about the startup space because it was fast changing. There was huge opportunities and also a culture that seemed to resonate with my personal values, which mm -hmm. was, you know, autonomous independent mm -hmm. uh, getting stuff done and making things happen and trying things mm -hmm. and being more experimental as opposed to following a traditional path of you know you do this job then you get promoted and blah 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 yeah mm -hmm. house picket fence yeah 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 yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I'm very traditional path mm -hmm. yeah and then so you you applied for this program I applied for this program yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and it was the first batch that they were going to take. Mm -hmm. I applied with one of my friends and we happened to get in. Wow. Yeah. Did you, what was that process? Did you have to have an idea and a, yeah. Yeah. So okay. we had to have an idea. We mm. had to have this, um, uh, you kind of have to put together a business plan. Mm -hmm. It was, pr it was, you know, pre the days where people would be like, don't send me a 15 page business plan. They were like, send me a 15 page <laughs> yeah. business plan. And so you had to like put together a business plan mm. and apply uh, through that. Yeah. So what, what was the that, idea? That, yeah. It was actually Groupon style deals for travel in South America. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And how did you, especially in ecotourism specifically, but yeah. And how did you come? Come up with up, that. Yeah. I mean, it's not that original. Yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or or was, it, was it more about getting to South America? And I think it was a little bit more about getting to South America, yeah, yeah. but it was mm. also about doing something fun and exciting. Yeah. So startups were fun and exciting. Jobs were not. Mm. And I... And that's all I knew at the time, right? Like I had mm -hmm. no idea how hard it was going to be. I had no idea about anything at all. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, it was just like, oh, like that would be fun. That would be exciting. Mm. I didn't want to move to South America just to kind of, you know, do nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like often casually blame this on my parents, but at this stage, like it was, it's all internal, yeah. right? Like <laughs> my parents aren't asking me to do anything anymore, yeah, but yeah. you're like, no, nah, like I mm. want to do something mm. and I have a desire to do that. And, uh, so I wanted to move to South America, but I wanted to do something interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so tell me about South America. Like what, what was that like? Mm. Uh, awesome 
Yeah. yeah. Fucking awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, love Chile, love Argentina. Mm. I've met, you know, some of the most amazing people that I'm still incredibly close with mm. there. Startup Chile was especially awesome because mm. it's like, and I think at this stage I was probably like 24, 23, like mm. super young. And moving there with, uh, you like move there and everyone in this program is mm. young, entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. ambitious, willing to move to a new country. It takes a certain type of person to move to a completely different country yeah. to start a business, which is like starting a business is hard work. Yep. Uh, and so they were from all around the world. All around the world. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. So start, starting a business hard work, moving mm. to a different country to start a business even harder mm. because you don't know anything about it. Mm. And there were a bunch of people who had never been to South America at the time as well. So you're like moving and same as me mm. moving to a whole new continent where you know nothing about the culture. You actually have to be kind of insane in yeah. the best possible way, in yeah. my opinion anyway. And that just meant that you found this instant community of people because mm. you're like all same like you know same yeah. human <laughs> so yeah. all the crazy people in the one asylum almost. yeah 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 exactly <laughs> exactly like you have to mm. be a bit nuts to do that and it's like a good kind of nuts so mm. like everyone you met there was just like awesome yeah i mean it, it's kind of i mean although this does not compare at all with south america but it was kind of my experience and this is maybe like where our stories intersect is where when I kind of started going to places like Inspire9 mm. and other startup meetups, and that was me coming from a corporate background. It's like, who are these crazy people, you know? Mm. Yeah. It was it was literally like the, the cantina scene in Star Wars <laughs> <laughs> before Luke, you know, heads off into the yeah, yeah. great unknown. Like yeah. all these crazy weirdos playing crazy instruments. I love that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but and so how did your idea progress so what what happened there like yeah poorly yeah. Uh, okay. so it was a bad idea let's be real mm. um so groupon style deals were popular for about 19 or uh, 20 minutes mm -hmm. and i think i started mine in the 19th minute so i had <laughs> yeah. my one minute and uh, it was so niche it was niche on niche on niche it was mm. uh travel deals specifically in south america and it was specific it was daily deals so if you didn't buy it on the day or week or whatever, it was like too late. Mm -hmm. And those aren't decisions that most people would make in that period of time. Mm -hmm. And also getting it. So getting in front of the right person at the right time when they're willing to purchase, uh, especially because like, you know, you still have to buy flights and coordinate dates and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's actually just not possible. Mm -hmm. so, so if you think about it, it was like trying to get a customer was trying to win the lottery. It was just unrealistic. Uh, mm. So that failed miserably. <laughs> uh, and so then what, what happened next? Were you still in Chile or did you? Yeah, I was still in Chile. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. uh, actually moved to Argentina at the time. So I moved to Argentina mm -hmm. and uh, it was... Uh, I was still working on this idea. So like at first I started the idea in Chile and then a few months, six months later, or eight months later, I moved to Argentina mm -hmm. and I was still working on it. And that's when at some point I decided this is actually not working mm -hmm. anymore. Learned a lot, 
one of the things was don't start a business by yourself, mm -hmm. especially if you don't know what you're doing. And then I met up with, uh, like I was, you know, staying with Indy, who mm -hmm. you know. Yes, yep. Who I met in Argentina. Mm -hmm. And she and I and uh, one of my other friends were flatmates. Mm -hmm. And she was a travel blogger and would mm. tell me all these like stories about stuff and i would like tell her about all of my problems and eventually we were like oh like we should probably do something mm. together <laughs> and so we did and that's mm. like when we started my second business out tripping that's right and what was that so that was more like personalized recommendations and travel and we mm -hmm. had a few different things that we did I remember it was kind of like the like a 99 designs for travel almost where people can yeah bid for yeah 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 mm. uh so we had the web app and that was pretty much that where mm. uh you put out an idea about what where you want to go and what kind of stuff you're into mm -hmm. and travel bloggers would pitch you ideas for your next trip mm -hmm. and then um if uh you can choose who you'd like uh to kind of work with you and they'd build out a full-on itinerary mm -hmm. for you okay all right, so we are at the point where you're starting your next company with mm -hmm. without tripping, mm -hmm. and you met Indy. Yeah. And I, I suppose what I'm trying to get to here get to here is this thing around entrepreneurship, and why it's so important to you. Like, it was. Is it more that you just got bit by the bug, and this was something that needed to happen, or what was I suppose the driving force behind? Yep. Yeah. Um, look, I think it's changed over the years. Mm. And I think that it definitely started with this sense of rebellion, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's been there from the very beginning for me. Mm -hmm. So whether it's expressing what's unique or whatever, and it, it, it it's always like a sense of not just accepting the status quo and if anything, having a automatic response of rebellion to a status quo. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of it came originally from there. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's really exciting and a great opportunity to learn things. And mm -hmm. there's so many amazing things about it that kind of reinforce that along the way. But I would say that that's where it began. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not where I'm at today. And that's not why I'm interested in entrepreneurship today. Mm -hmm. But that is probably the seedling that kind of grew mm -hmm. into something else yep and, and what do you think because entrepreneurship is now almost uh in the zeitgeist in the sense how you know rock music was in the zeitgeist yeah. a couple of decades ago like yeah. but what do you think uh people get wrong about being an entrepreneur or entrepreneurship so i don't know if they get it wrong or if yeah, like, I don't know if this is wrong. And I think it's like a personal decision for each person in terms of what entrepreneurship means for them and, you know, mm -hmm. why they do it and what are the underlying drivers and things like that. And, uh, you know, I was saying that for a long time it was about being uh, about being a rebel against the status quo. Mm -hmm. The status quo for me was climbing the ladder, the corporate ladder, ending mm. up in some sort of middle management position for the rest of my life and, you know, just sort of doing the standardized thing. That's like not something I wanted. And entrepreneurship offers a way out. Mm -hmm. That is 
for the most part, still an accepted pathway, right? Because I think one of the things is like, you're not an anarchist. You mm. don't want to be not accepted by society. Yeah. yeah. But you want to find a way in society within the principles or within like the mechanisms that exist, mm. but do something that is still a bit more different, a bit more uh, uh, rebellious mm. than what the status quo represents. Mm. And I think that a lot of that was true, but I think one of the, and is true for a lot of people that enter uh, the space. But I think that for me now, what entrepreneurship represents is a unique opportunity to connect with what are your unique skills that mm. you can bring to the world mm -hmm. and what's specifically what's specific about you that mm -hmm. you can bring to the world in terms of art skill knowledge experience whatever that is mm -hmm. and connect that with something that the world needs mm -hmm. and yep that's I brilliantly put actually thank yeah. you mm. uh and i think that the entrepreneurship attitude where it's really just about making money and you know, like you like open up Instagram and it's all like mm -hmm. make a million dollars in mm -hmm. cars, jets, whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't really think it's about that. Mm -hmm. I think it's about having a core sense of purpose. We might not like capitalism mm -hmm. and the complaints of capitalism are fair, mm -hmm. but it is also the greatest model of change that we know of. Mm -hmm. And no other model of change has been as successful as capitalism. And it has driven progress in many ways. At the same time, it has also cost the earth and mm -hmm. beyond mm -hmm. in the in many ways that we all kind of know about and mm. is not something that I need to really repeat. But what we have the opportunity right now with entrepreneurship, with startups, with this mechanism that we've created this machine that we've created where you can go from zero to massive cultural social economic impact in such a short period of time mm -hmm. you know shell has its origins way back into the 1920s and mm -hmm. beyond mm -hmm. whereas google was like 20 is 20 years old and i'm not saying google's a good corporate player i'm mm -hmm. just saying that it's only just 20 the years scale old. of yeah yeah, yeah. And and you one would agree that you know the impact that Google and a company like Shell might have is probably like equivalent if Google mm -hmm. doesn't have a higher impact mm -hmm. in the world. Yep. And so that means that right now what we have is a unique system where we can create change at a pace that is faster than we've ever been able to, mm -hmm. and we can use all of that to do good. Mm -hmm for the world right like mm. uh, connect with what the world really needs is not just about making products and services that people will buy mm -hmm. connecting with what the world really needs is creating solutions for the largest problems that society face whether it's climate change whether it's equitable healthcare, whether mm -hmm. it's any of that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and how cool that we have this mechanism to mm -hmm. do that so i think that's what entrepreneurship means to me mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's what entrepreneurship means to everyone, but I think for founders who are mm. not using their skills to like create 
a better world mm -hmm. for us and all future generations are just kind of missing this really amazing opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think also it's entrepreneurship can also be seen as a mindset in that maybe starting a company is not for you, but applying those principles of what you're talking about, talking about to whatever you're doing, seeing a problem, maybe assessing as to what's unique about you and then applying that to solving the problem is entrepreneurship. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Mm. It's the intersection of everything that makes you you and everything that the world might need. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I wish I had a map in front of me because I'm. Uh, we need drawing pins of <laughs> where we've traced around the globe now. <laughs> so we've gone from Dubai to Indiana to Chile to Argentina. So how did you end up in, in Melbourne? Yeah, so... <laughs> After Argentina, India and I actually moved to, back to Chile, uh, mm -hmm. where we started out tripping. And mm. Indy was in Australia and Melbourne at the time. Uh, well, she had just come to Melbourne for a wedding. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was like, oh, Canal, this place is awesome. You'd love it. It's amazing mm. coffee. It's amazing wine. There's cute hipster girls. and Big selling point. Check, check, check. <laughs> and I mm. was like, oh, that's like sounds cool. I was, uh, maybe I can look at an accelerator program in, in Australia. Because mm. we were applying to accelerator programs. Obviously, at this stage, we were completely location independent. So we were like, wherever is fine. We mm -hmm. were happy to move anywhere. And I applied to this program called angel cube mm -hmm. that was l literally the, it was the last day for the app for applications i applied on that day and this is a casual wednesday mm -hmm. that i just mindlessly applied to this program on thursday they contacted us saying hey looks you guys like atropin looks cool you guys want to come in for a pitch on friday mm -hmm. which indy because she was here for this wedding she was like yeah i could go and so indy went she pitched mm -hmm. They Skyped us all on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And on Monday, they were like, hey, would love to have you. Can you be here by Friday? And of the same week? Same week. And you were in Chile? I was in Chile. Okay. Wow. And so then I went to the Australian embassy to apply for, well, some sort of emergency tourist visa. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, uh, yeah, like managed to like get a visa real quick, mm. and that's incredible. I didn't know that it was like in four days. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah. I, I got on the flight on Wednesday because mm. I had to be here on Friday. Yep. And it takes like two days with the time difference, so mm. I actually got on a flight on Wednesday. So Wednesday mm. I had the idea, and the next Wednesday I was on a flight here. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I, I know. So I'm just keeping my eye on the time, um, but I would like to talk about just your experience of our trip in because mm. I think it, I mean, because I was kind of there in the, in the space while it was happening and you guys were really onto a good thing, but it didn't work out. And I'm wondering if you could just sum up that experience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, I mean, I think that, you know, I wrote a big blog post about this, and uh, actually, which we can we can link to as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we can definitely link mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. I think the summary of that blog post was that it wasn't my Everest, uh, but I came to mm -hmm. that conclusion over a period of a year and a half, and it it was a really fun and exciting time in my life, and I actually learned so much, mm -hmm. and 
uh, you know, we had lots of challenges in the travel industry. It's a really hard industry to work in mm -hmm. and also make money and even worse now. And sustainability of the business was always at risk. And I mm -hmm. lived on $400 a month in Australia, which was insane. And um, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. not including rent. So I think like including rent, it was $600 a month. So mm. I'm not really sure that's a better sell. But anyway, mm. uh, and uh, I think by the end of it, we were like, oh, this is such a slog. It's such a struggle. Mm. And I think the question became for what purpose, mm -hmm. right? And even though we really enjoyed the experience and we really loved the uh, experiences that we were creating for other people in mm -hmm. their travels, it felt like the skills that we had acquired, the insane amount of struggle that we had been through to get mm -hmm. to this point, and everything that we had done were, was like could have could be applied to a more meaningful cause, mm -hmm. and yep. that was why I say not my Everest, mm -hmm. and. I suppose I'm a little bit hesitant to ask this question because I don't want to kind of fetishize failure in that, sure, sure. like how it's, you know, hashtag failure, like it's being, it's become almost this, um, like this thing to achieve, like, or, or like almost like this tick box to mark, yeah, yep. especially in the startup community, which yep. like it, it does suck when you're, while you're in it. Horrible, yeah. horrible experience. Don't recommend it. Uh, but if, if there's one thing when you look back on that not working out, like what would you take away from that failure? That it is still an opportunity. Mm. And I know that that is probably going into the category of the hashtag business. Mm. But failure is hard. It mm. is challenging. It's gut-wrenching. It's all of those things, but it's also still an opportunity that mm. also happens to be the title of my blog post anyway. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but it is mm. an opportunity because you can learn from it mm -hmm. and you have to learn from it. If you don't learn, from, I, I think there's like nothing worse than the repeated failure mm -hmm. where you like don't learn from it over and over again. Yep. That's not the kind of failure that I would say be like, yay, mm -hmm. awesome. But Failure that you learn from is potentially far more meaningful than, you know, just like accidentally getting it right. Because mm -hmm. you really like it, ch it changes things for you. Yeah. A and so the first one was that, you know, like going it alone is not a good idea. Yeah. What was the one from Outripping? Like, what was the, the lesson would you say? I think the the biggest lesson was it's going to be a struggle. Mm. It's going to be hard. Mm. Make it count. Yep. There you go. Yeah. And um, I suppose which brings us... We, we, we've literally gone around the world, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think what you're doing now is incredible with, with Eugene. Um, and how, how did... So how did that start? Like, how did that how did that idea germinate? Yeah, good question. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if I can give you a short answer on this one, but my interest in healthcare sparked after my dad passed away, mm -hmm. which was very suddenly, and I was running Outtrip another time, and it sort of sparked a multi-year journey 
into uh, a growing interest in healthcare. Mm-hmm. My dad died pretty suddenly, and mm-hmm. if I had to like put it down to a cause, the broken health system would be a pretty top of the list. In Dubai? Or? In Dubai, yes. Yeah, um, wow. Oh, Sorry to hear that. It wasn't yeah. necessarily the f- like fact that he didn't get good care at the time and all of that kind of stuff. It's really just mm-hmm. that we're living in a world where most people don't have access to the quality uh, of care that's possible today, right? Mm. Uh, whether it's around prevention, whether it's around proactive healthcare, mm. uh, it's just not accessible to most people. Mm. In fact, we're spending most of our time just reacting to things. And I think the health system here, as well as like health systems elsewhere, mm. are very much geared towards that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you don't try to prevent stuff, you're always just reacting to stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it kind of sparked my interest in healthcare in in the reality that, you know, we live in a world where equitable access to healthcare is so far from uh, where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and I got really interested in genetics mm-hmm. because I found this to be sort of like the next frontier and the next frontier of healthcare being where you are able to predict and prevent issues before they happen. Mm-hmm. And these technologies weren't sci-fi anymore. They weren't yeah, futuristic. Yeah. They were here today. Mm-hmm. And yet most people didn't have access to that. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be really frustrating. And so I started to dig a little bit more. And the more I dug, the worse it got where, you know, the vast majority of genomic research only includes people of North European ancestry. That's and, crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 80%, which mm. means that about... 10% of the world's population represents about 80% of the world's research mm-hmm. and 90% of the world's population represents about 20% of the world's research. Can you say that again? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So 10% of the world's population, which mm-hmm. is North European, represents 82% of the global genomic research. Wow. And the 18 per, uh, 90% of the world's population, the remaining world's population, mm-hmm. represents just 18% of the mm-hmm. world's research into genomics. Okay, so I'm going to get this wrong, but but <laughs> bear with me here. Yeah. I remember reading this article about African-American men and prostate cancer. Prostate cancer, yeah. Where I think they're four times more likely Correct. than... And, but drugs kind of cater to the, the Northern European uh, norm, which is... Yeah. Yeah. So, Mm. yeah, so there's like a huge collection of issues, right? Mm. And uh, whether that's uh, drug research and like clinical trials and stuff. And so, for example, there was a drug on the market for five years before people figured out it doesn't work on 50% of Asians. Mm -hmm. And it's a drug to manage a deadly heart condition. So if it doesn't work, people die. And with prostate cancer, with uh, uh, and black men, mm. black men are about four times more likely to die of prostate cancer, and mm. we'll have to like confirm that number. But it, it's significantly higher than uh, than white men. Mm-hmm. And black women and breast cancer, once again, similar stats. And so we've got a few things that we're contending with, which is that there's research bias in research. Mm-hmm. So research is biased towards. Uh, Northern Europeans, essentially, Mm -hmm. or people of North European ancestry. And that results in that, any resulting drugs that come out of that research, any resulting regulations and 
treatment guidelines that come out of the research mm -hmm. are inherently biased towards the population that are included in mm -hmm. that research, right? And so we have that bias. Mm. There's a research bias, uh, which is incredible. Like, And it's also true for on a gendered basis. So mm -hmm. women are also deeply underrepresented in research. And so that's a huge problem. Then there's bias in treatment in general. Mm -hmm. So you have... This is pretty well known where if you're not white you're, or if you're not a man, your pain is graded as lower. Mm -hmm. And pain is like one of those things where it's like subjective because you have to tell people how much pain you're in. Like, do they still use like what scale yeah, of one to like ten? Some yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah, there's a scale that they use and mm. there's uh, huge uh, proven biases here mm. where clinicians will rate women's pain lower, will rate pain of men that are or people of color in general lower and mm. so we're like talking about an intersectional problem mm -hmm. in so many different ways and so so there's that then there's also like so there's just biases everywhere mm -hmm. and that all that means is like inequitable healthcare outcomes for what is close to 90 95 percent of the world's population mm. wow okay so, so then you, you find this out and, and like, what was the next step in your thought process? Like, well, that's <laughs> fucked uh, <laughs> was the next immediate next step. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, and the stat, there's so many stats. There's just like so many stories about this stuff mm. that you're just like, I don't understand how this is possible. How mm. is it that women are twice as likely to die of a heart attack as men, mm. uh, going to the same hospital, same condition, same time, same doctor, same everything, double the mortality. How is that possible? Mm. And you're like, oh, it's because all the treatment guidelines are based on based on research done on men. Mm. It's like, well, that just seems stupid, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's just like, no, it, it, it seems impractical. Like uh, w at this point, you hadn't, I hadn't really like experienced the systemic issues enough to be like, Oh uh, yeah, right. Like I understand it. All I just saw was like, this is stupid. Mm. This is actually just dumb. And uh, so my next step really was cool. Let's like let's figure out why that exists and why these biases exist and mm. w you know why there's such a disparity in genomics specifically because I was really f interested in that space mm. because it was about addressing a problem that going to, that's going to exacerbate over the next few years. Mm -hmm. And it all kind of came down to access, mm -hmm. right? There was limited access to genetics in large majorities of the world's population. There's limited mm -hmm. access to genetics in APAC. There's limited access to genetics in Africa, in South America. And so all of these countries that are underrepresented is because they don't have access to it. They've mm -hmm. never been screened. So they don't have any, they're never entered into any research databases. Mm -hmm we're not learning about them because they're never getting tested and mm. they're not getting tested because we don't know anything about them. So we can't tell them much either. Mm -hmm. So it became for me when I got, when I started Eugene, it was like, how can we fix this broken cycle? How can we like take one step in the right direction mm. and spark change in this particular cycle? Wow. So talk about an Everest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah tall mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so, so then, yeah, you, you're thought you're, you're thinking, okay, like this is the big circle. Like, what's the one small thing we can do? Yeah. Um, how did you decide on who's the we? Like, yeah, yeah. good, 
question. Mm. Um, the we, well, the first we was well. The first obvious we that I knew that we needed was a mm. uh, uh, technology person, mm -hmm. right? Where oh, we were always going to be a technology business, so mm. that was like cool. We need that, but that wasn't the first we that I went out looking for. Mm -hmm. um, the first we that I went out looking for was like, right? We need a healthcare person mm -hmm. because. I might have studied this for the past two and a half years. Two mm. and a half years is not a long time in medicine, as mm. most people will tell you. <laughs> so I was like, there's a whole bunch of, I just, there's like a big blind spot here. Mm. I can see the issue on a systemic level, but I don't appreciate the issue on a like individualized, deeper, deep down level. And mm. that kind of stuff only happens when you have someone who's a domain expert who's seen patients who's experienced this on the ground mm. on a day-to-day -day basis mm. and so my first we that i went out looking for was that person who's who's had the experience who's seen it all of these things that i'm looking on a systemic level mm -hmm. who's actually seen it in real life yeah. who's actually only seen you know 10 percent of the world's population mm. I, I suppose like when you were, when you started having these conversations especially with the medical Mm. establishment and professionals were they surprised by this data or were they no. did they acknowledge it and said yeah what can we do you know most new yeah i mean none of it's surprising mm. i think if you, it's only surprising to people not from the industry mm. uh a lot of people from the industry and zoe my co-founder who is this person mm. uh, uh says this all the time which is like you know everyone in the industry is trying to change it mm. no one's happy about these things it's not like people are like oh yeah that's cool yeah no big deal you mm. know people get into medicine because they want to improve people's lives and they deeply want equitable healthcare outcomes mm. this isn't a thing that people are doing on purpose yeah. right and and so and that's the reason why zoe was like yeah let's do this together mm. Because she had seen it in the public mm. and private healthcare system. She had tried to change it from the inside and mm. it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's kind of why we sort of, you know, banded forces. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also like a, like you said, a technology component to this. C can you explain that? Like wh how does technology come into this? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so a lot of, you know, we like, bringing Zoe on one of the things that became clear in terms of w so when we talk about that cycle and the loop mm. as to lack of access one of the key components there was a lack of specialists mm -hmm. we're just like there are not enough genetic specialists out there to mm -hmm. make this stuff accessible to you and us and everyone else and also the doctors and uh, clinicians who need to use this information and make medical decisions for themselves for their mm. patients right and so if you don't have enough specialists then of course most people can't access it mm -hmm. and if most people can't access it we go down a very traditional and similar path as we always have is that if only few people have access to it mm -hmm. it's either the rich or like people who are just like already really sick Mm -hmm. And this is like a traditional thing in healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can get access to really good healthcare if you're quite rich and or if you're really, really sick mm -hmm. and you go into the public health system, the public health system takes care of you, especially in Australia. Mm. And so uh, these were the only people that actually had access to the stuff because mm. of this bottleneck where there's just like not that many specialists. Mm -hmm. And 
we needed to fix that problem mm -hmm. and we wanted to fix that problem the best way we know how, which is to use technology mm -hmm. to automate as much as we can. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and that's mm -hmm. why technology played a big role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so like when you think, so you, you knew this, you had this massive problem to solve. Uh, you knew, you knew like, okay, these are, there are a couple of things we can do, but when you're thinking of like products or services for your company, like where, where did your mind go to? Like, how did you come up with your first product? Uh, yeah, so a big thing for us was like, how can we improve healthcare outcomes, right? Mm. Like, what can we do? Because we didn't want to just, you know, sell garbage that no one needed. Mm. We wanted to make sure that we we're selling tests that were going to have tangible impact on healthcare outcomes, mm -hmm. which meant that we needed to look at the technologies that are out there that are ready for prime time, right? It's mm -hmm. really about, you know, it takes about 17 years for a test to go from research to practice, it's just, which is like... Like a medical test. Yeah, yeah like a medical yeah. test, and like, or just like mm -hmm. medical, yeah. If the things that advance from research to practice takes about 17 years to yep. become, mm -hmm. uh, enter mainstream practice. So, which means for about 17 years, we have knowledge that we could be using to help improve people's lives mm -hmm. that we're not effectively using. Mm, I'm wow. not sure how many pe billions of people are affected by this, but mm. it's probably all of the people on earth. Yep. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So it's like, it's crazy, right? Yeah. Like you're, the gap is so insane mm. that, uh, you know, if there's an opportunity to shorten that gap, Mm. Um, and you know the specialists are usually on the like are on the bleeding edge because they're most aware of what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so if there's a way to shorten that gap by using an ex scaling specialist knowledge in genetics, that could be really really valuable, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we started. In terms of the products that we were choosing, we're like, what are the products that are out there today mm. that should be accessible by everyone? Mm -hmm. What are the no-brainers? Mm -hmm. uh, in carry screening was one of them, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that it helps people understand if they're at had risk of having a child with a serious genetic condition. Mm -hmm. Everyone should have access to this test. Mm -hmm. Like hundreds of conditions that we could avoid passing on. There's hundreds of conditions that if we had advanced knowledge about, we would do something about it and we would be able to do something about it in the mm -hmm. current medical healthcare setting. Mm -hmm. Everyone should do this test, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's a no-brainer. That those are the types of products that we wanted to bring to market. And mm -hmm. this is the first one we chose. Partly it was because of Zoe's experience in the industry mm -hmm. and what she had experience in, uh, in terms of obstetrics and reproductive technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, so that helped. But what also helped was that, you know, this is something that can create tangible impact on healthcare outcomes today. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I suppose how would that tie into the your big mission which is making uh healthcare data more equitable and more yeah yeah so making genetics accessible to all and that that requires uh several several points of fixing in terms of the the broader cycle mm -hmm. the first thing is tests aren't accessible, which means people aren't getting screened. Mm -hmm. And tests aren't accessible because they're either geared towards Caucasian. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most popular tests on the market is a three-gene test mm -hmm. that only screens for conditions that are common in a Caucasian community. Mm -hmm. 
why this test is still out there, I'm not sure. Shouldn't. Uh, mm. I understand <laughs> it's important when it first came out, but now you can screen for 300 conditions for uh, n not a significant difference in price. And those conditions cover a m larger percentage of the world's populations or like the conditions that a larger percentage of the world's population face. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we got to do is make tests more inclusive. Mm -hmm. That was like, that was our first port of call. Uh, so that's the first step in doing so we can actually like make tests by, m by using more inclusive tests. We actually make those tests accessible to a wider demographic of people, mm -hmm. right? Like if I tell you that, um, this test covers conditions that have been more common in your community, then you're like, oh, this is going to be relevant for me, right? Because mm -hmm. if I'm going to tell you like this condition that you've never heard of, you're going to be like, why do I care? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas when there are conditions, when those conditions are common in your community, it's more relevant for those mm -hmm. people. Yep. So that like that's kind of the first step that we had to take to make the testing itself more accessible to a wider community. Mm -hmm. uh, our long play is around the technology that we develop to actually be able to accelerate research itself. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing research, you're doing the same sort of genetic counseling that you're doing in a one-to-one -one basis when you're dealing with patients. Mm -hmm. And the technology we're developing is kind of custom built for low-touch genetics education and mm -hmm. uh, consent and recruiting and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so the long play is to help accelerate research by repurposing the platform we've developed so far to do the testing that we've been doing and make it possible for clinical researchers to really scale up how many people they can include in their research, mm -hmm. right? And large-scale research is the path forward mm -hmm. towards greater access for everyone as long as that research includes everyone in our community uh, and yep. not just a mm. small subset. Okay. Um, uh, I know there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> a bit of a reductive question, but mm. so genetics is for, for I suppose most of my life is kind of on the cusp of sci-fi and now it's reality. And so with what you're doing, how do you like, or are you thinking about how you prevent like a bad uh, Black Mirror episode where pe <laughs> people want to design a babies and, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, hmm. you know, the thing is, the technology will exist. Mm -hmm. You can't change that. You can't stop that. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can maybe slow it down a little bit you're probably not going to slow it down too much. Mm -hmm. And really, that means that we need to decide as a society, what is it that we want to want? Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. like the bigger question. Because mm -hmm. if you accept that the technology is going to exist, then we got to figure out what is it that we want to want. Mm -hmm. And what we want to want. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. like, because what we want is going to be possible. Mm -hmm. So the only thing we can change is what we want. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so, so that's like one thing. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that there's like guiding forces that we can use to kind mm -hmm. of drive this question and this like, you know, 
um, drive the answers to this question as mm. a society. So if we continue to find differences within ourselves and each other, and we glorify or demonize those differences, mm. we'll use the technologies that we have accessible to us mm. to, to like use to that end. Yep. And so this question isn't necessarily about genetics. I mean, it kind of is because we, I understand that the technology is coming, but the fact is that the technology is coming anyway. Yep. Mm. So like, mm. who do we want around to be leading those conversations? That's the mm. first question to me. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the reasons why I got into genetics in the first place. Who do we want in those conversations? I was like, well, I want to be in those conversations because quite frankly, at the moment, it seems like the only people in those conversations are uh, I'm going to say old white men mm -hmm. because that's just like what it is. Mm -hmm. And, and it's time for us to take an active interest in these conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, us being people of color, us being women, us mm -hmm. being like people who are underrepresented in these communities, mm -hmm. uh, in these conversations, I should say, uh, because if we're not included in those conversations, mm -hmm. then those decisions are made without us. Mm -hmm. And, because the technology is coming anyway, our only option is to actually be leading it in w in directions that we want them to be going mm -hmm. into. That's mm -hmm. kind of how I feel about that. Yep. And I know it's no, kind of a like roundabout yeah. answer. Yeah. I didn't actually answer the question. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose so just as we wind up, because um, I'm, yeah, I'm just again keeping an eye on the time. Um, just with Eugene now, do you feel like you found your Everest? Uh, yeah, I found my current Everest for sure. Like yep. I know for sure this will not be the last company I ever start. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think that you know everything we learn will, mm. uh, everything I learn like kind of takes me to a new place and mm -hmm. create more and more ambition. <laughs> yep. Mm. Right, and I think that. You know, it's uh, a, such an important problem to be solving, and I'm really uh, invested in solving this particular problem right now. But I know for sure in the future I will start another company too. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is my current Everest. Yeah, uh, but but I think I, I've got to say, like, what I I suppose admire about you is just this kind of fearlessness of going after big problems. I mean, not 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 so much, uh, or even you know, things like um, you know moving to Melbourne in like four days from Chile or even going to Chile in the first place. Um, like what do you, what would you ascribe that, that attribute to or, or do you think that's teachable in a way? Like, it, it hmm. I mean, I don't really like believe in this sort of, god-given traits so i sh mm. i feel like surely surely yeah. <laughs> it's surely teachable right like mm. i don't really believe in god so mm. um, <laughs> yeah. um yeah i i i feel like it's definitely teachable mm. um yeah i don't know if that answers your question it's a hard question um uh, i suppose what, I, what i'm trying to get at is, is is this search of yours that that you're on yeah um and I think it has a lot to do with um, you kind of, you know, questioning the status quo and trying to, in some ways, rebel against the status quo 
and that's always been like your Everest. Yeah. But then, then to do that, you had to kind of push yourself and be courageous in certain ways. Yeah. Where you see something, okay, that's a cr- that's on the other side of the globe. But holy shit, I need to get there. Yeah. Not many people would do that. Yeah. I I at twenty three, I certainly would have done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is trying to trace that attribute of okay. Here's what I want to get, but I need X. I need to be not not sort of get X, Y, and Z, but I need to be X, Y, and Z to to get there. Yep. Am I making sense, or am I just? Kind. I'm. I think I'm trying to follow, but I'm gonna need a actual. I'm gonna need that to link to a a, a question that I can answer. I think I'm getting it. Like where yeah. it's like. Yeah. No. Let's try it again. Okay. <laughs> um. Or maybe we'll come back to that. Yeah. And maybe um. We'll get to, which is usually my final question, which is, like, the name of this podcast is mm. on meaningful work. Yeah. Um, to you, what does that term on meaningful work mean? Yeah. Mm. Um, I think I think it's that thing that I mentioned earlier, mm. which is what's, how can you connect what's unique about you to something that the world needs? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's meaningful because you're 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 serving a greater purpose in the community around us mm-hmm. and you're adding value to the world mm-hmm. and you're doing it in a way that connects with who you are and for the lack of a better word your soul right like it's mm-hmm. connecting like to your soul to like the to to the wo- to the world at large or the universe at large mm-hmm. and i feel like that's meaningful work yeah mm. and i'm going to try this question again yeah and I suppose to achieve that goal of meaningful work, you need to be courageous. Yeah. Uh, how did you become courageous? Or was that an inborn trait? Or was that something you had to... Work at. Work at, yeah. Might be controversial, but I think I just tricked myself into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. I think things are scary. I think that's like whole the whole part of it. I mean, that's like you know the whole point of courage, I suppose, is mm. to actually be afraid as well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I usually just like trick myself into being like it's going to be such a great adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And it helps to have family and friends who are so incredibly supportive, mm-hmm. who've like helped me throughout this whole experience. Um, and, you know, feeling like, I, I definitely feel like it's a privilege to actually find that courage as mm-hmm. well, because there's a lot of people who couldn't, right? Mm-hmm. Like, or wouldn't be able to. And, and I think that that's something that I want to note because I think that's important. Yep. Uh, but I think the, having the support of friends and family around, mm-hmm. um, Having that connection to yourself, I think, is really, really important because if you connect to yourself in that way where you're like really able to appreciate and understand what is it that's unique about you and how that connects to the world at large, mm-hmm. like that requires connection to yourself and connection to the world. Yes, yeah. Uh, and I think also... That helps. Um, I think just kind of reflecting on my experience, I think is that, that, that thing around community and that finding your tribe... And then the tribe kind of lifts you and kind of helps you be more courageous. 
feel safer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think I found that at, I mean, you could find that depends on, you know, what your goal is. 100%. There's communities, you know, yeah. online or wherever, but. Yeah. But yeah, I think I found that like initially within Spire 9 and then, you know. Definitely. And yeah. like, I think that's played a huge role. Inspire 9 has played a huge role in this. Co-working space in Richmond, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah good. Um, mm. And Startup Chile played a huge role in this. Mm. Uh, my friends in Chicago, when I had to like make that decision to move to Chile, played a huge role in that. So mm. 100%, no one does anything alone. So like the people around you makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they can make it safe for you to take risks. Yep. And as the uh, champagne comes down the stairs, <laughs> I think it's a good place to wrap up, Kunal. Awesome. Thank you so much, buddy. Really appreciate it. I know we've gone way over time. You're very welcome. This um, is, might be your longest episode <laughs> ever. Um, you may want to edit most of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we got some good stuff here. But really, thank you again. Awesome. Yeah.